This is part two of a conversation between Ensgar Allen and Patrick Ryan for Childhood History and Critique, recorded in December 2014. Part one can be found on the website of the Society for the History of Children and Youth. So I want to redirect us back to uh, a part of your book uh, that I find fascinating and compelling and really important, and it centers on um, educational history in uh, England in the 19th century, moral training schools and uh, monitorial schools. They're both projects in, in that utilize elements of examination, one that is the the moral training schools draws more on what Foucault called pastoral power, which some listeners might know in terms of the shepherd flock game. Yeah. And the monitorial schools, I think about Lancaster, I think have been studied more than the moral training schools. They're, they're related, but they're also shaping the soul through um things that are more recognizable in terms of what Foucault called modern disciplinary power. You examine these two types of schools to talk about the shaping of the soul, which I would just add in my own, this is my own commentary, I'm not saying this is your argument, I think has been there in pedagogical discourse for thousands of years, the Uh shaping of the soul. I think it would be hard to have a pedagogical discourse that's not connected to that. And that's part of your understanding as I read it as well. I'm really interested in this way, in these two schools, like to hear you say a little bit more about them, and particularly how they're similar and how they're different, how they help us understand the relationship between power and knowledge and examination in schools, and why why people... Um, who are interested in these issues, you know, might want to pay more attention to these two historical examples of schooling? Well, I guess when I first approached the problem of examination, I felt as someone who's been examined a lot, like most people my age and younger, is that I, I wanted, what I wanted to do basically was write a critique, a devastating critique of its most oppressive aspects. You know, this was my yes. uh, high ideal when I started out. But as I got further on with that, um, I came to realize that by doing that and by focusing so intently on its most oppressive worst parts, I was missing a lot out. And that what I was doing was falling into a really common trap, which I see again and again, which is to assume that the most me- mechanistic, most instrumental uh, types of examination and education more broadly are always necessarily the worst. And we just need to get rid of them. Yeah. So this is a trap because it generates a kind of blind spot which allows a lot to go unnoticed or at least unquestioned. So this is why I turned to these two early threads of examination back in the 19th century, which you mentioned, and it was an attempt to disturb this basic assumption that mechanistic forms of examination are simply bad and humane interpersonal forms of examination are largely good. Can I interject right there without trying to interrupt your of thought. Do you, this strikes me as one of the most common misreadings of Discipline and Punish, Foucault's probably most well-read books, is people will read that and say, he's after mechanisms of oppression. And part of the whole point of his project was to suggest that it's not the mailed fist, but it's the velvet glove, which is far more effective 
in shaping the soul and is a more powerful mechanism of exercising power and subjectivity. Is that part of what you're trying to draw on? I, yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, so when I use Foucault to talk about what I would call here, broadly speaking, the more mechanistic science of examination, within that, um, to understand Foucault, you need to sort of realize that he's talking about um, the production of people where, um, where yes, you're right, the sort of the, the glove is, is better than the, um, I don't know, the cane or whatever. Um, or worse. Or worse. <laughs> yeah. But um, I guess that kind of what could be called a misreading of discipline and punish is, I can understand it, because I think Foucault was at a point where he was developing his analysis of power and he was making more and more emphasis of its productivity, its positive um, influence on things, and that it wasn't always something which inflicts and which takes away. Mm-hmm. So I think that change in his analysis of power is happening in the background of discipline and punish, which means that you can get two different, very different readings out of that book if you look at it closely. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess, and he, he makes comments in interviews about that. He says, you know, look, back in the uh, his history of madness, he was really seeing power as quite an oppressive thing, whereas now in his history of sexuality, it's, he's, he's looking at it very differently. Um, so I think there are sort of quite complex things going on in the history of, of his personal development, which make discipline and punish tricky to read sometimes. Okay. Um, yeah. But I've kind of broken your flow of, uh, flow of thought about the significance of the contrast between moral training schools and monitorial schools. Well, yeah, no, I'm glad you did, because what I'm doing there is I'm creating, and I can only give now in this sort of uh, conversation a very short, clipped version of the argument in the book. So I would be contrasting a monitorial to moral training schools as if they were um, very different, uh, and one was oppressive and the other one was productive, and it wasn't quite like that. So I'm quite glad you made that uh, interruption, because um, I think that's important to clarify that both the monitorial school and the moral training school were, were mixed. They had a lot of different things going on in them. Uh, and so it's it, it's important not just to completely contrast them as, as two radically different um, systems of power. But having said that, some degree of contrast is nevertheless useful in terms of relating back to the problem, which is that we always think that mechanistic things are, are the worst in education. Um, so there, there are these two types of school. They existed before state schooling in England and in many other countries, and that's why they are quite significant historically. And they were exported globally and were eventually combined and transformed so that they formed the modern classroom as we know it today. So mm-hmm. the modern classroom really is a, a very peculiar mixture of techniques taken from these two broad types of schooling along with a whole lot of other stuff as well. So that's why they're interesting in their own right. Yeah. So a monitorial school, well, very briefly, that was in many respects like a, a great machine or factory, um, sometimes called factory schools, and they were designed to be as an efficient and orderly as possible requiring the least exertion of effort on behalf of the school teacher. So they already, you can see there, that you have a system of power which isn't, um, you know, 1,000 pupils or 300 pupils in this school. They're not all working at the same time because if they didn't, 
they would get immediately uh, disciplined in the severest way. The idea here is that you could have a school which would run itself, and that's because of the way in which um, power is organized in that school. So it's not, although it sounds mechanistic, draconian, in principle, and this was the great hope of the people who designed these schools, they hoped that they could almost work without the necessity of having a, a, a school teacher there at all in the first place. Mm-hmm. So this is one model of schooling, and the way in which you can understand it is through reading Discipline and Punish and through thinking about the power of a certain kind of examination in that context. Quite a different type of school was the Moral Training School, which existed slightly later but ran in parallel with the Monitorial School. And this was a very intimate space, which was run interpersonally and particularly through the agency of the pastoral school teacher. And this teacher was expected to develop close confessional relationships with the pupils. Now, comparatively speaking, we've got a more humanistic school here, but it was still really highly moralistic, perhaps more so, and a more constraining environment in a way than the the, uh, monitorial school. Give you an example of this. When you leave the front door of the monitorial school, you go straight onto the street. These were typically interior spaces. They had no grounds. Mm-hmm. Whereas the moral training school, if you left the front door, you would go into the school grounds and you would have a playground. And this was their innovation in a way. Because in the playground, you have children who go outside. They have a break from lessons. But play isn't just to give them some kind of release for its own sake. Play was deliberately encouraged because it would give them a certain degree of free expression so that the school teacher, who could watch from a distance, could observe the children very closely in their natural state and then use these observations to develop moral lessons which would be addressed back inside the school building. So I think... We have a a model of schooling here which is just as disturbing, if not more so, than the monitorial school. And it makes use of a very different kind of examination, a more friendly, interpersonal kind of examination. Now, we've got two models here. They don't translate directly to the present. I think it's a mistake to read things in the present as being simply disciplinary, for example, because it's a, a 19th century configuration. There have been numerous changes to both of them. But I still think by telling this history and by experiencing it, we can start to question the common assumption, which I started out with myself, that overbearing top-down examinations are bad and bottom-up, more humane, interpersonal, classroom-based assessments are good. One of the the ideas or arguments that I gathered from your book is captured in the line, um, the logic of examination constitutes modern schooling as part of its ontological condition, or as the logic of examination can't be separated from schooling. And it seems to me that this is a position that allows you to trouble um, reform agendas or reformers who might think that they can save schools um, from the problems of power in education if they simply alter the methods of examination, bringing in the most extreme examples would be portfolios and performances rather than, let's say, uh, multiple choice standardized testing. It seems to me that part of what you're 
what your work is implying is that um, it won't be so easy to do that. No. How would you respond to, let's say, reformers who will say, I agree with what part of your you're saying in terms of there being underlying power knowledge connection between schooling as a project and examination, but that it is better to have a form of examination which is not high-stakes multiple-choice multiple testing because students experience it as alienating, more alienating than they would if, let's say, they were giving portfolios or performances or other alternatives, more holistic or child-centered forms of, of uh, evaluation. The problem with responding to reformers in their own terms is that you're forced into addressing the needs as they're presently defined. Um, but I think that there is also room for another kind of thinking, which um, doesn't respond so uh, quickly to present-day problems, but spend some time investigating how those problems uh, were created in the first place, how the needs which we're being asked to answer or to address were produced, what are their histories, could those needs be problematic, even dangerous perhaps. Um, so that's, I, I guess, why I, I say I don't write for reformers, although I'd be really pleased if, if they did read my book, <laughs> because I think it would, um, I think it has a role to play in the, in the process, in the overall process. Um, but also, I think that we can't just solve our problems by just carving out bits of education that we don't like. Um, so I don't think that you can just take bad kinds of examination away in a way that allows good types, types of examination to fill their place. Um, in part, this is because, as I've suggested, I think that what is good in education could be, on closer inspection, far more ambiguous. So these more humane kinds of examination that you mentioned could be equally problematic, if not more so. So I guess what I'm calling for, again, is a kind of perpetual vigilance um, and an acknowledgement that there are no easy or quick solutions and a real suspicion of um, solutions that, that appear to, to solve our problems quickly. Um, surely our problems are much more complicated than that. But there's another reason why you can't simply get rid of examination or the bits that you don't like. And this is because examination basically constitutes us. So we're made up of its procedures and ways of thinking. It's got a logic which is already well embedded within us. Um, it takes different forms, it has different roles throughout history, but it's made us what we are. We've internalized it. And I guess what the book's trying to do is to show you know, how deep examination runs. So if you take a little bit of it away, it might still be there in a way that you don't necessarily recognize. Mm -hmm. That makes sense to me, and it, it sort of leads into a, another question, and, uh, and this is uh, kind of a follow-up question drawn out of the article that you published in the American Educational Research Journal, but this is where you acknowledge uh, that there's a phrase is the examined life in that article, and yeah. you acknowledge that you sort of de deliberately um, conflate the examined life, that phrase resonates with, you know, Socratic thought. Um, with examination in the mechanistic sense, the sort of modern sense of examination. But I, I guess I want to ask in terms of 
historical ontology. Foucault uses the word historical ontology. It's picked up by Ian Hacking and others. But the idea that pedagogy produces states of existence is ancient. That's an ancient argument. And, and one of the most important early, or, or I should say oldest arguments we have that is the argument between Plato and his student Aristotle about the kind of soul that will be created depending on what you include in proper pedagogy. Um, you know, what should be allowed, what should be fostered, and, and ultimately how you're going to shape a republic or a, a society around, around uh, uh, that effort. Plato is saying there should only be a culture of disputation. We should just get rid of, you know, separate, you know, anything, anything that gets in the way of that, separate that out. Um, and Aristotle wants to include a broader definition uh, in terms of creating the right soul. That's a complicated argument, and I'm sub- covering a lot of ground. But I, I say that because I think there's this, there's a really a long history of having this discussion around pedagogy, what is an examined life, the production of a soul. When you conflate something like Socratic dialogue as a way to engage in producing an examined life and therefore a certain kind of soul with, let's say, multiple choice testing and disciplinary technologies uh, of hierarchical examination and normalizing judgment, are those the same kinds of souls? And if they're different souls, or if they're, they're, they're ontologically quite different, isn't there something at stake in making that distinction? Do you understand what I'm saying? I do. And I just want you, I, I don't know, that's not much of a question. <laughs> Maybe you could just respond to what I've kind of lifted up. Well, I, I suppose in a, a very short response would be to say that I think that they are conflated in practice. Um, so I'm not sure whether, uh, how useful a separation would be, a conceptual separation. I think it would be more interesting to see um, how they are wrapped around each other in practice. Um, I mean, I, I, I say, I think it's quite early in the book that I deliberately conflate the, the examined life and the high-minded Socratic sense um, with this more lowly kind of, as you say, multiple choice, basic. Absolutely uh, you do. And so the question is, should we? For the purposes of uh, unsettling ourselves, perhaps we should, because it is very easy to criticise multiple choice examinations mm-hmm. whilst remaining quite comfortable with the kind of life to which we typically aspire in universities, which is, uh, you know, could, would trace itself back perhaps to that statement which Socrates makes. So you have a kind of critique which issues from the university but leaves the academic feeling very secure, whereas really um, examination has always typically um, emanated from these sorts of institutions. They are producing the multiple choice exam- uh, tests, um, or they, they have done uh, historically, um, just as much as they are producing this high ideal of the examined life. I think that's quite interesting that they're doing both of those things. I, I, I wouldn't want to let them off the hook. 
Yeah, well, I, I do think it's interesting as well. I guess I'm, I'm, I'm wondering whether or not it's also useful, and here I, I know I'm contradicting or providing a contrary point of view. I also think there's a value to aspire toward the form of the essay, the Socratic dialogue, and these things are related, and to spurn as much as I can the pressure that I am under to, to apply things like multiple choice testing. And these are real, these are real pressures. If they put 130 kids in my class, <laughs> you know, there's, there's a hell of an incentive for me not to have them write too much. Absolutely. And I think that battling against that is worthwhile and what allows me to sort of negotiate that, I know this is highly personalized, is thinking that I am somehow connected to what is a project in constructing the soul. You know, as Foucault said, the prison of the body, right? So I'm engaged in that power, uh, that uh, that exercise of power. But it's an exercise of power that I I subscribe to to a certain extent, and I'm not willing to subscribe to all of the other mechanisms. Does, does that make? No, I mean I, I sympathize with that with that to the extent that um, I think it would be foolhardy to hope for some sort of liberation from either of those two extremes and so it really is a question of thinking well what kind of prison do I want to live within yeah and and if you prefer the sort of the Socratic prison then then fair enough um I would you know definitely given the the choice if, if it was a stark choice like that but you know I would choose it definitely um but I still think that in the university context, it generates a sort of conceit about higher education, about its purpose, about its value, um, which isn't helpful and which can operate as a kind of a block um, to critical understanding and thinking critically about our context. If we just see this as a fight to get rid of the worst kinds of instrumentalism, um, I'm not sure that that still pushes us into a very productive alternative. And so I want to be equally suspicious of the academic essay. Um, and which you do in the book, which the book is. Which the yeah. book is, yeah, definitely. Um, and to create, not have that as a, as, a, as a sort of a point of comfort. And so there are other conversations you can have uh, and ways of writing that you can do and that students can do, um, which is far more uncomfortable. Um, and it's that, that really interests me. About, I'm, I'm interested in the possibilities of that, that kind of teaching and that kind of writing, perhaps, which acknowledges that um, education might be uh, really, really problematic. It might be something that we can't save um, but we still have to inhabit it. And so what are we, how are we going to do that in a way that's interesting and productive without insisting on uh, giving ourselves a, a long and venerable history of a certain kind of thought, a certain kind of academic production, um, which prevents us from thinking critically? Well, this has been a, um, a lot of fun for me, and I really appreciate you taking the time to... Uh, record this conversation and to, uh, 
I, I hope others get get some enjoyment out of it. It's it, and it's been it's been great to to meet you. Yeah, good to meet you too. You've been listening to a conversation between Enscar Allen and Patrick Ryan, recorded December 2014, for Childhood History and Critique, a bi-weekly program sponsored by the Society for the History of Children and Youth.